This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my time to show politics without the boring bits. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, for free on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episode, it's a threat to democracy, no less. That's according to the media minister, who is concerned about the disappearance of local journalism. Local papers, uh, local websites, even the BBC's cutting back on local radio as well. So we're taking a look at that in our big thing in just a moment. But first, it's a Tuesday, so it must be a how to win an election day. Here's a little teaser of this week's episode. Let's get podcast done. Strike up the band. There's basically a market failure in coups. Anybody who's delivered a lot of leaflets will have strong opinions on letterbox design. I sang the solo of In the Bleak Midwinter on a Decca recording. Here we are again then. Welcome to How to Win an Election, your insider's guide to the huge political year ahead. I'm Matt Chorley. And we're all back in the studio together again. Joined us over by new Labour mastermind Peter Mandelson, Polly McKenzie, who's Director of Policy for Nick Clegg in the Coalition, and Tory Brainbox, Daniel Finkelstein. Are we all well? Thank you very much. Steve. Very well, thank very you. Well. Good, good. Now, uh, we know that everyone loves the theme song. That's one of the recurring themes of uh, when people get in touch. a song? Well, music, theme music, okay. theme, theme tune. Just clear. A theme tune. Uh, and various people have sent in their own versions of the uh, of the theme song. Uh, and Chris in Barnet emailed in saying, I can play the theme to How to Win an Election on my head. Would you like to hear it? <laughs> Let, let's go with that. Let's go with that. <laughs> So it's quite it's quite hard to do. Yeah. Does anyone want to try it? There's a very no, yeah. there's a very interesting book about whether or not other people can can understand the tune that you're playing if you tapped it. So if you tapped it and did not tell us it was the theme tune, yeah. there's no way any of us would have got what it I was. I definitely couldn't. I definitely wouldn't have got no, it. But, but we were, I'm because we knew, we knew what it was. But this book, Nicholas Epley's Mind Wise, is really, really good. It's all about whether we can understand each other. And what it suggests is that you think everybody knows when you tap something uh, that 
everybody yeah, knows yeah. what you're tapping and in fact nobody knows what you're tapping and it's a, this is an analogy for the way that we all think that other people can read us and we can read other people but in fact we're really really bad at it can we, we, have a, we, we be chuck? without all danny's theories can we, I mean, can we hear it again <laughs> Exactly. Uh, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. That just sounds completely different. Right? Like, that's, <laughs> that's like a kid playing with a stick. I'm sure he's a very nice guy. There are many different ways to win tune. an election. That's what that is saying. Well, it's 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 an extraordinary piece of audio. Well, if you if you want to get in touch because you can play the theme tune on a different body part, uh, email us how to win at thetimes.co.uk. Or if you want to get in touch with any questions for us about anything that's happening in politics and elections, email us how to win at thetimes.co.uk. And we look forward to what on earth arrives next week. Uh, so this week we're asking how to deal with the ghosts of former leaders. Boris Johnson's back to haunt Rishi Sunak at the COVID inquiry. Keir Starmer is dreaming of Margaret Thatcher. How should a leader deal with their predecessors? Um, Danny, uh, if anything which reminds Rishi Sunak that he was part of Boris Johnson's team comes with a risk for him, doesn't it? Yes. Look, I think he has not dealt with this issue. And it occurred to me when I was looking at the cabinet list that he's now got, uh, which is, you know, David Cameron, Jeremy Hunt, Alex Chalk, Victoria Atkins, Gillian Keegan. Uh, he has got a pretty centrist cabinet. He has therefore, in some ways, picked sides, and yet he hasn't. What is it that holds him back from picking sides? Well, it's refusal to deal with what's come before him. He, he he will not say where he stands in relation to Boris Johnson's politics or Liz Truss's. It's actually a bit difficult because in order to do that, you have to kind of establish where it is you think that Boris Johnson did stand. Because in, in many ways, Boris Johnson was actually the most left-wing leader of the Conservative Party since Macmillan. Um, and so you, uh, you know, you don't, you have, you have a great deal of difficulty making that judgment. But my view is, if he was going to give a direction to the Conservative Party, he had to deal more clearly with what he thought about Boris Johnson on ethical issues, what he thought about Liz Truss, which he did, after all, say in the leadership election on spending issues and position himself to some extent by contrast with his predecessors. Otherwise, every time he sort of says, I'm going to make a change, against what? Against, well, you know, he said 30 years and then he pointed David Cameron. So what is the against what is he making this change and what and to what extent uh, do we blame him for the policies that were implemented by the government he was a member of yeah. does he distance himself from them or not he hasn't made a choice about that for one reason or another whether it's out of politeness or it's out of confusion or i don't know what it is but i think it, it's a mistake it should be quite simple for sunak in a way because what johnson offered in 2019 was a mixture of sort of brexity nationalism and high spending socialism i mean he was a sort of national socialist in that sense i mean not in a nazi sense but, you know, he was a national i mean he was <laughs> just to be clear just to be clear, he was both nationalist and socialist. Now, both of those sort of are dead in the water. I mean, nobody is remotely interested in revisiting uh, Brexit. We've been through our sort of nationalist stage. We've passed through our Brexit therapy. And we've come through the other side. Nobody wants to be dragged back uh, to that. Uh, and we're in a deep fiscal hole, uh, which means that socialism uh, is not going to arrive anytime soon. So it shouldn't be hard for Sunak to set out a completely different sort of way forward and scheme of things. But unless he sort of removes himself, airlifts himself out of this sort of Johnson vortex, 
I just don't see how the public will view him as credible, viable, and somebody you know who's a sort of who's born to lead. He just, I mean, perhaps he's just too big a problem in the Conservative Party. Perhaps they're just so divided and he doesn't want to ignite, reignite all those sort of tensions and spats and battles and it's not an option for him. But it's certainly, to my mind, if he's going to stand any chance of winning the next election at all, you know, hovering on zero probably, but if he's going to stand a chance, he's got to sever himself. He's got to separate himself from Johnson. But I think we... we easily get confused because Boris Johnson is such a big character between his personal and kind of deficits or problems and uh, and whether his political pitch was right. Because as Peter says, and Danny says he's left wing, I mean, left wing, right wing, it's a bit hard to pin him down. But there was that high spending, uh, uh, but sort of, and, and still quite socially liberal kind of agenda that Boris Johnson had. Um and that's not actually what brought him down with the voters. What brought him down was that he was involved in a whole bunch of parties and a whole bunch of scandals, which he didn't Lying, to, rule to do. breaking, yeah, exactly. chaos. So, yeah, some, you know, stuff like <laughs> that, right? I, I didn't want him to be the Prime Minister. But nevertheless, it was he was brought down by character faults, not by the failure of his political pitch. And I think what the Conservatives have struggled to engage with is that despite the kind of external factors that Peter mentions, that's still probably mm. the best political pitch for the Conservatives to have, slightly more... But um, how do you convert that pitch into policies? I mean, Johnson didn't succeed in sort of, you know, laying out and pursuing a coherent set well, of policies. Th- he had a pitch, yeah. yes. It's the well, one I, I think, think I described. <laughs> but, uh, well, I, I, I actually would turn to the levelling up white paper, which is about 900 pages yeah. went long. Went nowhere. No, exactly, it went nowhere. white but paper went nowhere. But you're... That, that's not the point, though. The point is, it is a very coherent yes. political and policy pitch grounded in evidence and pragmatism. Yeah, I agree Crafted with by that. Michael Gove. But you're right, yeah, they yeah. didn't do anything. But that's not the yeah. same as saying there's no there's I, no way to translate I, the pitch into politics. I policy. Agree. It's that they just didn't do it because, A, Why? they got distracted, and B, because, because of the next lot are, in fact, not in favour of that stuff. They're still lost in this sense of yeah. what... Because Boris Johnson's agenda fell. So what fell, are they in favour of? Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, no, but I don't. But all I'm the many the things person. we can hold. Danny, Danny, come on. Not what are they in favour of? <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to do that because that's uh, that's divert us from the conversation we're having <laughs> into a long conversation about Tory manifesto. You can tell but me I, after. But I, well, okay. But I, 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 I shall. I agree with Polly. I don't actually think. I think they. Did know roughly what they where they were going. There was a lot of dispute about whether it was the right direction or not, mainly because Boris Johnson was also opposed to the consequences of his own position. So we've got a very good example of this with the row about immigration. Everyone starts having a massive row about how there's too much immigration. The government does something about it. Everyone then complains. There's there's that means there won't be enough. Right. So um, people. And Boris Johnson was opposed to some of the consequences of his own policy. So, for example, he was in favour of big expenditure on infrastructure, expanding social spending and social responsibilities to things like social care, but also in, against putting up any of the taxes necessary yeah, yeah, to pay, to for, pay it. for it. Mm-hmm. So, so this ended up being being a, dis, a, a dispute with Rishi Sunak, mainly about whether or not you could be that fiscally irresponsible. You asked the question, Peter, could he oppose... Um, Boris Johnson more explicitly? And the answer is, I think he's already paying the price 
for the fact that he's distanced himself from Boris Johnson. He may as well get the benefit from it. He's not, <laughs> he, you know, he, in, other words, yeah. in other words, he's already opposed he's by... the price it. inside his own yes, party. Yeah, yeah. He, inside the Conservative Party, any price that Rishi Sunak will ever pay for not being Boris Johnson, for opposing Boris Johnson, for bringing Boris Johnson yeah. down. He's, he's paying that but, already. But he's ended so he up in the well, no man's Correct, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm saying. So he, he, what he's not doing is taking advantage of that. So he absolutely can, because he already is bearing the political costs of distancing himself from Boris Johnson. Um, and my question to him would be, well, if you're already paying the price, why don't you get the benefit from it in terms of a public argument? Because every public argument you try, the route runs through saying, we're not going to run the government in the same way. Um, it's not so much that you're distancing yourself from him politically, although there were certain issues so on, you know, on, on kind of rule of law issues. Basically, Danny, do. you're saying that what Sunak's got to do is do a Starmer. Do st what Starmer has done to Corbyn, he's got to do to Johnson. Yes, I, I mean, he's got to disavow him, repudiate him, perhaps not cut him off completely yes. uh, at the knees, but and disqualify him from standing at the next election, which is an extreme, well, 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 an extreme mold-breaking <laughs> approach by Keir Starmer to his predecessor. Is it too much? No, it's not too much. Right. It's uh, necessary, inevitable, uh, and exactly what the public demands. And what's interesting about it is that the party hasn't risen up in revolt against it. But I, you, you admit, there's still not that simple, though, because what is he going to repudiate about Boris Johnson? The idea of governing like a sort of bear in a tea shop, he can repudiate that. <laughs> but um, the, the, the central proposition was actually well structured to bring together the coalition that won mm. Boris Johnson the 2019 so election. So Johnsonism without Johnson. Exactly. So, so if he's going to distance himself from that more sort of centrist, high spending agenda, he he can do that. But that in fact plays to the more extreme wing of the Conservative Party, uh, and so that's doing exactly what Danny advised him yeah. not to do last week, yeah. which is to tack towards what might win you the election. He needs right. Johnson without Johnson. But he could, but he could, but he can just make that argument. And what I'm saying is, I, I think actually, relative speaking, it's relatively easy. Boris Johnson, in fact, has also been removed from Parliament in the same way that has happened to, and Starmer, uh, to Starmer and Corbyn. And Starmer took his time over this. The first shadow cabinet he appointed was designed to obscure all political choices, to, to appoint people who had no trace of... of politics that you could tell in the background in the Labour Party. And then, about sweep, half, a little sweeping down. and then about halfway through, um, well, you know, it's a caricature a bit, but I think it's reasonable. You're exaggerating to um, make a point. Uh, exactly. Yes. Uh, halfway, uh, halfway through this, um, how does one cope with this? I know, it's it's exhausting. No, 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 come to he's the end. Very, I've you're, begun you're, to become he's, sympathetic he's, he's to that, Gordon yeah, Brown over there. He's had a double dose of granola this morning, I think. It's enough to drive one bananas. Anyway... Bananas and a small pot of yogurt. You know, about halfway through, about halfway <laughs> through the yogurt. parliament, yeah. he did then... Then he, then he made a choice. choice. Just because we're talking about Keir Starmer and, uh, and Tory leaders, is he right to uh, say he admires Margaret Thatcher, Peter? Of course he's right to say that she was a strong prime minister who had a vision for the country uh, uh, at, at, at one stage a fairly well-worked-out plan and some changes that would, in her view, benefit the country. 
why shouldn't he say that? I mean, what he wants to... Uh, uh, but was it a bit... So we were discussing uh, this I mean, uh, yesterday. Not, Is it a bit try-hard, writing an no, I love Margaret Thatcher piece in the he, Sunday Telegraph? It wasn't, a, it wasn't an I love Margaret Thatcher. It was saying, this is the sort of prime minister that the country needs. I mean, that's why he's associated himself uh, with, with, with Blair, with Attlee, to an extent Wilson. These were sort of modernising prime ministers with a vision and a plan. You can argue as to to what extent each of them fulfilled their plan and realised their uh, vision. But they were modernising prime ministers and they were also election-winning leaders as a result. Now, that's why Starmer has embraced Attlee, Wilson uh, and, uh, and Blair. And when it comes and to Thatcher, Thatcher, and Thatcher, and when it comes to Thatcher, he's not sort of embracing her philosophy. He's not endorsing all her policies. I mean, that is a matter for debate. I happen to think that some of the things that she did in relation to uh, the economy uh, were timely and necessary. Yeah. I think she also... Uh, was oblivious to and indifferent to the many of the social consequences mm. of her economic is, policies. Now, that's my view. It, that's not necessarily Keir Starmer's view. But to say what sort of prime minister he's going to be, I think is very good. And incidentally, it's why Gordon Brown in, in, invited Margaret Thatcher into number 10, uh, a, a slightly sort of awkward uh, visit that Mrs T paid uh, uh, to, to Gordon. Were you there? I wasn't there, no, but I sort of followed it acutely on television and I felt acutely embarrassed by it because they all, both of them, were equally sort of awkward in the whole, during the whole thing. And it's yeah. why Ed Miliband that... also, uh, also said, oh, I want to be like Mrs Thatcher. Of course, what Ed Miliband wanted to do uh, was to do on the left what Mrs Thatcher had done on the right. Ed Miliband once explained this to me. He wanted to, sort of, from the left, you know, draw the centre ground of British politics onto his and the Labour Party's territory in the way that he believed Mrs Thatcher had done for the right. And he wanted to be, he told me, I want to be the Mrs Thatcher of the left. He, uh, my critique of Chris, Keir Starmer's article was that he, it was an article in which he said he'd like to be like somebody who had a vision, uh, rather than actually <laughs> saying what, you know, which... <laughs> Which wouldn't be all right, and 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 I and, I, and I, that you know, uh, and I think uh, rather than actually set out yeah, yeah. what it was, and it's all it's all out of the Tony Blair playbook, isn't it? When you were in 1994, uh, Tony Blair told the Times it was the clear sense of an identifiable project for the Tory Party that I did admire. It is absolutely essential in politics. That is what keeps you going, Matt. This is, goes back to the discussion we had last week about leading deciding and dividing. Yeah. You know, we were talking about how you deal with dissent in your party. You only encounter di di people who dissent when you give a clear lead, when you decide and take your party in the country, you know, with clarity and purpose in a direction. That is what Mrs Thatcher did. Like it or loathe it, that is what she did. And I think that Starmer is right to say that that's the style or model of leadership he wants to adopt as well. And if you want to hear more of Peter Manderson, Daniel Finkelstein and Polly McKenzie, the full episode discussing what you do about those pesky former leaders. Head over to How to Win an Election, wherever you're listening to this. Right, up next, we're taking a look at local news for local people. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yeah, but can you read all about it? As readers increasingly get their news online, it's becoming harder and harder to run a financially sustainable newsroom, particularly for local newsrooms. 320 local newspaper titles closed down between 2009 and 2019 in that decade. Even more have closed since. Advertising revenue fell by 70% between 2010 and 2020. Many small independent newspapers have closed their printers for good. And even the big four publishers, which control... Almost 90% of the daily print market, they're struggling too. Reach, which is the parent company of the Daily Mirror, the Daily Express, and the biggest publisher of local news, with titles including Liverpool Echo, the Manchester Evening News, they've just announced plans to cut 450 jobs. That's 10% of its workforce. It said in July that just the cost of printing newspapers had gone up by 60% due to spiralling energy prices and the cost of paper, and so it needs... To cut costs. It's also making it harder and harder uh, to make money from selling advertising uh, online. Another big problem for news publishers is that the BBC has plans to expand its free online local news content. That comes after major plans to cut local BBC radio services. Today, senior local editors from several newspaper companies have joined forces to call on the BBC to abandon these plans, which they claim will undercut their own businesses. So today we're going to take a look at the state of local news and why it matters. The media minister says it's a threat from it's a threat to democracy. We'll hear about that in just a moment. But first, Nancy Fielder is editor-in-chief at National World, one of the publishers of local news, which has joined this call for the BBC to abandon its expansion. Hi, Nancy. Hello, good morning. Good, good to have you with us. Uh, Roger Litolis has been a feature writer and columnist for various local newspapers in the Northwest and is the author of Panic as Man Burns Crumpet, The Vanishing World of the Local Journalist. Roger, good to have you with us. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll get Roger in a minute. Uh, we've also got Polly, per- Polly Perkins, former editor of the Burn Grieve Messenger, a local community paper in Sheffield, which closed down early this year. Hi, Polly. Hi. Ah, we have got Polly. Very good. Um, uh, Nancy, let's start with you, first of all, and explain in detail the issues you have with what the BBC is doing and why it threatens commercial local journalism. Okay, so, I mean, as you just explained, times are difficult for um, local journalism. We are constantly reinventing ourselves. We've got some incredibly skilled journalists, all sorts of ages, but they need their salaries paid. Now, the fundamental thing with the BBC is, as we all know, the licence fee, 
you can't choose to pay it or not pay it. Everybody pays it. It's effectively a tax. And what they're now doing is opening up more than 30 local websites. As you said earlier, just months after huge strikes and massive uproar because they've cut back their radio services and they're basically parking their tanks on our lawn and they're going to be able able to give local journalism free it won't be as good as we give it won't be as in-depth some of our titles have got hundreds of years of history but they won't have to charge for it because we we're all paying for it because we pay for it through the last license fee so everything that we've done to build subscriptions to grow our loyalty is being undermined by an institution that has got massive challenges it should be focusing on stop doing so many repeats improve their national tv coverage and we bring back the local radio stations that are an absolute lifeline in cities like Sheffield, where I am. Radio Sheffield was massively successful and they've lost a lot of their good presenters have made them redundant. And it's going to be, it's, it's all broadcast from somewhere else now. It covers a big, big, bigger area. So if they want local journalism, focus on what they do. Don't try and close us down. Um, Polly, let's bring uh, you in there. What's been your experience? Uh, tell me about the Burn Grieve Messenger uh, and uh, and whether or not what, what what Nancy was just saying rings true. Um, well, so the Burn Grieve Messenger was quite a unique case. It was the only um, charity-run newspaper in the country, um, and actually, it was pretty much a two-man job. So, um, as editor, I was also project manager, and I was responsible for finding funding organising all the um, journalism that went on um, and also sorting out the distribution. Um, and it started off well-funded by organisations like the National Lottery and getting quite a bit of public money. Um, this gradually diminished, as all charities have seen um, recently, and that then meant that it was simply me and a designer running the whole thing. Um, so... Um, whether or not it had been financially sustainable, that wasn't sustainable. It wasn't possible for two people to do that much work. Um, and and then the funds stopped coming in and the National Lottery said they wanted to reduce the amount of projects they were funding in Sheffield because they felt they were funding too many charities in Sheffield um, and they needed to fund more broadly. But of course, the reason so many charities in Sheffield needed funding is because Sheffield gets less public funding than many other places. Um, so there were lots of strains involved in the collapse of the of the messenger. I suppose the, 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 the point is, I mean, the fact that it was a charity points to the idea that the reporting of local news is intrinsically important, but it's really Absolutely. hard to it's it's labor intensive uh and, and it's hard to make money from it actually because quite a lot of it is is dull hard work um and when people have got you know the entirety of everything ever made on their phones you know their their willingness to pay uh, to read you know dry sometimes dry but quite important stuff about the local area just isn't isn't there in the numbers that it that it takes to uh, to make it viable, uh, Roger. I think we've got Roger now. Uh, Roger Latonis. Before we come to the the, the 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 vanishing of the local journalist, just explain "Panic as Man Burns Crumpet" is the title for your book. Uh, yeah, well, the, the title. We're just looking for a, a kind of um, hopefully funny, zany kind of title, and we trolled the, um, the the local press for some some funny um, headlines, and that was the one we came up with. Sadly, I can't claim to have written the story <laughs> myself. I've never written anything as good as Panic as a Band Burns Crumpets, but uh, hopefully it's, a, it's an eye-catching title. And why did you want to write it? And, um, and, and tell us about the way that the local journalist is disappearing. 
Uh, well, I wrote it because um, I, I think I've had quite a varied, interesting career, as, as any long-serving journalist has. Um, I came into journalism in, in 1995 when local newspapers were, were still riding high. It seemed as if everyone bought or at least read the local paper at the time. And then there was until kind of the mid, you know, around 2005, that was probably still the case. But then in the last 15, 18 years or so, there's been a, a gradual decline and my career kind of spanned that decline. In fact, four years ago, I was made redundant. Um, so I thought um, it would be good to tell tell a story, not only of, of a, you know, a journalist's career and all the variety that that brings, but also the the decline of journalism itself is kind of personified by my career and also many of the people I knew. Um, I mean, when I began in 95, there were about 70 people working in, in my newsroom. Um, by the time I finished, there were maybe a dozen people left um, I think that kind of decline has been mirrored around the country with all the, you know, the ramifications that that brings. I think it's just a, an important story that probably people outside of journalism won't be, won't be aware of it. They still expect to get the same kind of uh, quality of product that they had 20 years ago. And they don't always realise why things have changed so much. Um Nancy, I was talking about the, the the cuts at Reach. I know National World have have similarly. You know, you've had to cut your your cloth as well. So one in four jobs have gone since you took over what used to be um, Johnson Press. How do you compete? Because, like I said, it, it's labour intensive. Often you need to produce more and more stuff. It, how how do you do the stuff that we're talking about? The 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 proper local journalism, the holding, the police, the courts, the council to account stuff. While also just you know when you know we're not just drifting into clickbaity stuff that attracts eyeballs but doesn't actually sort of serve any 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 purpose the roughage that you want from uh, from proper local journalism. Yeah, I mean let's not pretend it is a real challenge. Yeah, but we are very blessed with two or three generations in a newsroom who are incredibly skilled. I mean, back in the day, you would go out, you'd get a story, you'd phone it back, and and that will be it. The the people we've now got and they are coming out of university and they are still eager for this they still understand how important local journalism is they go out they'll go to a meeting they'll do a video clip they'll do a facebook live they will put it on tiktok and they'll still write the story at the end of the day we have journalists who work very very hard very very fast and and they do get stories that basically the nationals then follow up several days later and turn them into into a story that's of national wide interest. The local journalists on the ground are the ones who know what is going on. As, as Polly said, Burngreave cannot be served. It's only a small area of Sheffield, but the, what it had was unique and it's lost that and that can't be replaced by something else. Nobody else, the BBC can't come in and do that. Polly's reporters, not that she had many, but the contacts that she had are irreplaceable. And that's what you don't get unless local journalists are, they represent the community because they're part of it. But it is really hard. And every day there are stories that you have to decide which, what's your priority today. And there are some stories that, like you say, they might not be the most exciting. Everyone on Facebook is going to click on it because a massive amount of our audience comes from social media to the website. But we believe they still need covering, and so we do. But I don't think there's anything that we do that we think is. I mean, we do we do funny stuff, we do entertaining stuff. It's it's not just our job to inform. We want to yeah, educate, and, of course, and we want to give a smile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so everything we do, but we 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 do to try and give our readers the boss, best possible experience. But every day there's stories that you can't necessarily cover because they go down the priority list. And that is really sad. You yeah. might have been able to do that 20 years ago. But the, financially, a lot of readers don't understand that unless they would have always paid for the newspaper, unless they're willing to subscribe and support us, then 
there is a threat there. But we, luckily, we've got very, very loyal readers. And you have on some of your sites, they are, there are subscription models in the same way as you know, the Times has a, has a paywall and you have to subscribe. Um, on some, is it on some of your sites, but not all of them, there were subscription models? Is it, something, is it the case that you would charge for all of them were it not for the BBC? Is it as simple as that? that the, the very existence of a free, uh, you know, licence fee subsidised uh, news outlet, is that what stops regional journalism from being something that people just have to pay for online? Well, in other countries, I mean, if you look at Scandinavia, is a great example where they haven't got a BBC and everybody for the last 20, 30 years has just paid for their local journalism because that's what they did and that was the only way to get it. So whether you remove the BBC, I don't think it would magically solve all our problems. No, but, but it's just example, where we are now, yeah. Yeah, Wolverhampton, the Express and Star <laughs> is a fantastic, one of the best in the country, local newspapers, it knows what's going on. Nobody else can do what they do. They're just launching a paywall and guess what? A couple of weeks later, the BBC is going in there for free. So how does that survive and it's journalism and it's the communities that suffer because they can't do what we do yeah. but they give it away for free it's not free we're all paying for it we're just not paying for it in a way that we see every day <laughs> so roger having looked at the the value world of the local journalist did you come away from it uh more pessimistic or is there are there reasons to be optimistic let's try to end this on a slightly more optimistic note mm. Uh, I mean, I think, as Nancy says, it comes down to people have to be prepared to pay for, for local journalism. I think we all like to think that there's a huge audience out there, out there you know, who, who are prepared to, to invest themselves even small amounts in local journalism because they realise how, how important it is and the kind of work it can do, the kind of good it can bring to, to communities. But um, ultimately, it comes down to people actually being willing to put their money where their, where their mouth is and, yeah. and do that. So... I think it depends on finding the right models, whether it's subscriptions. Um, obviously, the BBC, as you've said, doesn't doesn't help. But um, I think, you know, it, it, it depends. It, it, it's harder for people to, to pay for, for journalism. If the quality isn't there, obviously, it's yeah. becoming harder for the quality to be there. Is, we've got so many factors working against local journalism. But, uh, you know, we need good journalism and we need people to support it. And actually, one of the things that we should point out, the BBC do pay for the local democracy reporter scheme, which comes out of the licence fee, which actually, I think, yeah, we've we've had loads of local democracy reporters on the show. Uh, and they're really good. And they sit in the newsrooms of uh, uh, of local newspapers and websites uh, and do cover some of those stories that you want to see covered. Uh, Polly Perkins, just finally with you. Um, any, I mean, it's, I suppose it's difficult to be optimistic when the uh, burn grieve messenger that you you ran uh, closed earlier this year. Any 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 reason to be positive? Well, I think um, the the reasons to be positive are that we all have access to the internet and that people can write about things going on in their local area and can find audiences. But it seems to me deeply un undemocratic um, that local news isn't publicly funded to a greater extent than it is. I don't understand how we can, as a nation, make decisions about the MPs we vote for, make decisions about the campaigning we do without getting proper investigative journalism happening in our local area. And that can only be done by local people who understand the complex nuances mm. of their communities. That knowledge is acquired over decades. It's not something you can just parachute into an area and gain and then report adequately on. Um, yeah. So my call when I attended the select committee was we urgently need central government to fund local journalism. Um, that hasn't happened. And so organisations like the Burn Grief Messenger have shut down. And that, frankly, is partly because... 
the funding that used to come to organisations like the Messenger um, from central government now comes from the National Lottery. And that's a very different thing. Yeah, and the lottery, yeah. and no matter how much they fund, yeah. can't fund in the way that central government can through taxes. It's simply not a replacement for the arts funding and the other funding that's disappeared and then been sort of shoved on the lottery, on the lottery. pile. And then, like you said, you're then at the whim of each round of bidding and all of that. Polly, really good to speak to you. Polly Perkins, former editor of the Burn Green Messenger, a local community paper in Sheffield, which closed down earlier this year. We also heard from Roger Latolis, uh, the author of Panic as Man Burns Crumpet, The Vanishing World of the Local Journalist, and Nancy Fielder, editor-in-chief at National World, one of the big four publishers of local news. Right, let's look now at what the government could do to protect the financial sustainability of local journalism. I asked the media minister, Sir John Whittingdale. Well, there are a number of interventions which government can and have made. In particular, you, you've mentioned the role of government in trying to ensure that there is a fair balance and negotiating power between the big tech giants like Google and Facebook and the newspapers, because a lot of the news that you see on Google and Facebook is actually derived from journalism by local reporters. And it's only right that they should get recognition and payment for that. So that's something where we have sought to ensure through the Digital Markets Unit that that negotiation can take place. Uh, we've done a number of things to try and support local newspapers, like reducing business rates, uh, obviously a, a, a major campaign during the pandemic of public information advertising. But at the end of the day, government can't subsidise local newspapers. Uh, we've got to find a way in which that they can remain viable in a very different landscape. One of the biggest challenges, and I remember this when I worked in local papers, when trying to build an audience online, was that new local newspapers were going up against local BBC websites. And there was this constant complaint that the BBC, as a uh, providing a free website, made it impossible for local papers to be able to charge. Uh, and that was the defence, you know, but the defence was the BBC was there and it did local news that no one else was doing. But now we see the BBC is also cutting its its local radio output less and less local. Do you think the BBC is even fulfilling that remit? Having sort of helped kill off lots of local newspapers, it now seems to be retreating from the thing that we were told it was essential for it to do. Well, I mean, I'd be very critical of the BBC, but at the end of the day, the government can't tell the BBC what to do. But I think they are making a mistake, firstly, by cutting local radio. There are still a lot of people who depend on local radio, particularly more elderly people, and to get rid of some of the local stations and move them to a much broader regional basis destroys the local component. But they're doing that in order, they say, to spend more on digital journalism. And that's where they are competing directly with local newspapers. And local newspapers, understandably, are upset when they are trying to uh, survive by uh, charging people uh, for access to content online and are competing against the free BBC. So, I mean, I do think that the BBC need to think again. We've told that to them. Um, and Ofcom needs to look at whether or not the BBC are delivering on their requirement to deliver for local audiences. It does seem like it's almost impossible in the digital world to survive ultra-local sites, you know, one-man band startups we've heard about closing, while big companies like Reach, you know, who own dozens of papers across the country, national, regional, local, uh, they're laying off, what, 10% of, of staff. Is it impossible for us to have a thriving local 
news industry if the BBC is competing with it directly with a free offer, uh, free at the point of use, if you like, without subscription? Is, is that a, a sort of a, an existential threat, do you think, to, to local and regional news? Well, I think the BBC are making it harder for local newspapers, but the the prime cause of their problem is not the BBC. The prime cause is that people are no longer buying newspapers. They are getting their um, news content online. So I think that we are seeing a long, slow, but inevitable decline in the printed newspaper, that the model is going to have to change. And and in 10 years' time, I, I fear that not only will you hardly ever see a local printed newspaper, national newspapers will be going in probably in the same direction. When was the last time you bought a local paper? Oh, every week. I'm, 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 I do. Oh, very good. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, as, as, a, as a constituency member of Parliament, I'm quite keen to find out what my local paper is reporting. And uh, occasionally I hope it's going to be me. Um, so now I still subscribe to the local paper, but I know from having talked to the editor that the circulation figures are heading steadily downwards. And just finally, John, what does that mean then? You know, we're talking about the media because we're interested because we're in the media and you're a media minister. But what does it mean to normal people if councils and courts and police uh, and all those decisions aren't being scrutinised by an independent reporter in your local area? What ultimately does that mean in five or ten years' time? Well, I mean, I do think it represents a real threat to democracy because, for instance, you know, next May uh, we will, as usual, have local elections across the country and people need to know about the performance of their local council and in order to reach judgment. And they need to be able to hear it from impartial, accurate journalists. The trouble is, if, if that disappears, they will become more and more reliant on social media uh, reports, which often are not accurate, certainly are not balanced, are not legally checked, um, and are, are full of wild speculation and rumour. Professional journalism is still vitally important for a functioning democracy. So I am deeply concerned to try and help the newspapers find a way of making sure that they can continue to thrive. And does that involve the BBC raiding its neck in a bit? Well, the BBC is helping in some ways. And we've talked about the competition from um, BBC local uh, news websites. But at the same time, there's something called the Local Democracy Reporting Service, which we worked with the BBC to set up, which is where the BBC is funding some journalists for local newspapers. So that's the kind of model where the BBC and government are actually trying to support newspapers. But we need to look across the board uh, and find... Uh, a lot of different ways in which we can try and make sure that newspapers and, and journalism at a local level continues to survive. That was John Whittingham, so John Whittingham, the uh, the media minister, uh, discussing the impact of what is happening in local news and the local BBC output on uh, on the state of democracy. He mentioned there that he hoped that journalists would be able to create new sustainable business models online. Well, having heard about some which didn't work, let's speak to someone who uh, thinks they might have crashed, uh, cracked it, not crashed it. Uh, Yoshi Herman is the editor of The Mill, a digital news startup based in Greater Manchester. But now, now you're taking over the world, aren't you, Yoshi? Haven't crashed it yet. <laughs> <laughs> just explain, because you uh, just explain to people what the mill is and the extent to which you think you might have have cracked this idea of how you can pay for people to produce proper journalism locally. Yeah, so the mill is a publication I started a few years ago, and we publish in depth, high quality journalism about Greater Manchester, and it's delivered via an email newsletter 
And the fundamental way it's funded is from readers paying subscriptions rather than advertising online. So it started that in Manchester, and then we started a sister newsletter called The Tribune in Sheffield, another one called The Post in Liverpool, another one now called The Dispatch in Birmingham, all based on the same model. Um, you have relatively low cost, but you have really high quality journalism and people pay for it. And I think that's a much better model for local news. We've now got about five and a half thousand paying subscribers across the, the, the different cities. We've got loads and loads of um, stories that are kind of like, you know, making a real impact, uh, creating social change, um, prompting people to think differently about the places they live. So I think that's a much more sustainable model. I think the model that's been pursued across local media for the past 20 years, which is give away most of your stuff for free and then expect the ad revenue to make up the gap. I think that hasn't worked. Just give us a sense of how much, if I wanted to subscribe to the mail, how much would that cost? £7 a month. And is that enough then for you to pay the people who are producing the content properly? Yeah, so we, we've got we've got ten people on uh, full time staff now. We also spent about thirty thousand pounds last year on on freelance journalism. Um, we're we're not paying you know we're not paying as much as the I'm sure the New York Times is, <laughs> but we're paying equivalent to what other local newspapers are paying. And I hope as we go along, we'll be able to pay more than uh, regional and local newspapers because um, currently journalism is you know, it stopped being a sustainable career for a lot of people. A lot of people, you know, when they have kids, when they have get a mortgage or whatever, they can't stay in local journalism anymore because the money has stagnated for 30 years. I'm hoping that in future we will be able to pay, you know, uh, substantially better than local newspapers currently do. And your, um, approach, you know, your approach is to do less, to do, you know, to do fewer things better. You know, one one or two really interesting stories rather than the sort of, throw everything at the wall and hope some of it sticks or somebody comes across it and, you know, just enough eyeballs. That actually, you think that it's almost like the, you know, it sounds like the opposite. The people want, you know, they're willing to pay to get less but because yeah. it's good. Yeah, I think people want to pay for stuff where they know everything they get is going to be fact-checked, it's going to be thoughtful, uh, editors will have looked over it. Like, we do actual editing back and forth, <laughs> back and forth with a writer, which feels like a little bit of an anachronism. Um, in this world of like, you know, there are lots of local papers now where things don't really get edited, they just get thrown up. As you say, they're going for like uh, publishing dozens or hundreds of things a day. And by the way, Matt, they're not doing that because they love publishing press releases or they love publishing stories about something a celebrity said on Instagram this morning. It is because their business model, which is primarily about online advertising, incentivizes them to do that. You can only make money from online advertising if you reach tens of millions of people a month because you make very little money per click. And therefore, you have to go for this kind of scale model where you're publishing as much as possible. If you say our main business model is going to be money coming from readers, as you guys know at the Times, you can prioritize quality and you can prioritize a smaller volume of content. So we've gone down that path. And I think probably local journalism should have gone down that path the moment the internet came along rather than going down this um, sort of mail online strategy. Well, it's really interesting, uh, your approach. Yoshi Herman, good to speak to you, the editor of The Mill, the, uh, the digital news uh, startup in Greater Manchester. Loads of you getting in touch about this, actually. Uh, Mike says, wouldn't devolution to the regions provide a shot in the arm for local journalism? An excellent use of shot in the arm, a phrase only used uh, by local journalists. Uh, Stephen in Sussex says, the local media point being discussed 
Uh, look at what happens in the US. Democracy is in a dire state, not helped by the absence of independent news locally and nationally. I mean, it's an interesting point that, uh, Stephen, and you know, what's happened in America you know, tends to wash up here uh, um, in terms of uh, they've lost so many local papers. Sam in Brecon says, funding local news. Local news should be funded by levy on football clubs. A small levy for lower league minnows and local teams, large levies for the premiership. Football, especially at the high level, is awash with money, but it's both a local industry and also covers the whole of the nation. Clubs benefit from local match reporting and local community involvement. It would give good football it would give football a good chance to give something back to the locals. I mean, it's, it's a radical idea, Sam. Uh, and then Lisa gets in touch and says, I have an online time subscription. Invariably, I end up buying a copy too, which is nuts. But I find reading online irritating. And I also seem to miss stuff. A proper newspaper is so, so satisfying. Well, if we could get everyone to do that, Lisa, we would have no trouble at all. Uh, get yourself a subscription and... Uh, buy a copy of the paper. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and tell your friends. Why don't you? But for now, for me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.